1: Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, November 10th. I'm Leslie Palma.
2: And I'm Teresa Watson. We're so happy to have you with us tonight. In our top story, we'll talk about the disappointing results in Tuesday's high-stakes elections. Stephen Billy from Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America, will help us make sense of what happened.
1: Teresa will report on the greatly reduced third Republican debate, which featured just five contenders for the 2024 presidential nomination and report on a New York Times poll that was nothing but good news for former President Donald Trump.
2: In Abortion in the News, Leslie will tell you how pro-lifers in Michigan are fighting back against a pro-abortion ballot amendment passed last year in the state, and the charges against an Idaho mother and son who allegedly took a 15-year-old girl for an abortion in Oregon against her will. Don't even think about missing our closing
1: segment when pro-life podcaster and activist Seth Gruber joins us to talk about his White Rose resistance, and the evil roots of the modern abortion movement. And Priest for Life National Director Frank Pavone offers a word of encouragement to those of us still reeling from Tuesday's pro-life losses. Also, I'd like to take a moment to say happy birthday to my daughter, Hope. She was my unexpected pregnancy at 40 years old, and now she's a high school teacher in inner city Philadelphia. Happy birthday, Hope.
2: Happy birthday, Hope. (laughs) It was bad news all around for pro-life in Tuesday's elections. In Virginia, Democrats succeeded in holding the majority in the Senate they have had since 2020, and they flipped the House of Delegates. In Kentucky, pro-abortion incumbent Democrat Andy Beshear was reelected governor. In New Jersey, Democrats expanded their majorities in both the Assembly and Senate, and in Pennsylvania, Democrats increased their majority on the Supreme Court. And most heartbreaking of all, Ohio voters decided by a wide margin to invent a right to abortion in their state constitution. To help us make sense of what happened and where we go next, we've invited Stephen Billy, Vice President of State Affairs for Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America. Welcome back to the show, Stephen.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So Stephen, I'm sure you're as disappointed as we are. Um, Let's start with Ohio. What do you think went wrong there?
3: Yeah, uh, obviously a very disappointing outcome, very concerned about what the passage of issue one could mean for Ohio going forward. I think we're seeing it play out in Michigan right now with them removing any pro-life protections. Um, And I think one of the things that we have to recognize is the other side has unlimited amounts of money. You know, In in Ohio, throughout the last year, they spent $60 million from their side uh, to the $30 million from the the pro-life movement side. Uh, And what they use that money for is to run campaigns of deception and really to lie. And on top of their money and their advertising and their direct lies, they have the mainstream media and national media outlets parroting what they're saying um, and further spreading their lies and ingraining them uh, with the voters. And so we really have to go back in and identify how can we both expose the extremism of the other side, show the compassion of the pro-life movement, but also combat the deception um, that's being forced on voters through the the tens of millions of dollars from, from the left.
2: Well, the Ohio Supreme Court is considering the constitutionality of the state's heartbeat law. Is that a moot point at this point?
3: I think that for the Supreme Court to determine that, that we do have the ability and the rights uh, to protect unborn children from when the time their heart is beating would be a positive thing. We would, we, I think they still need to make that decision. Um, however, they're going to have to now reconcile it with an extreme amendment that would eliminate any protections for the unborn, allow abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, Uh, attack on parental rights uh, and even remove laws that were allowed under Roe Roe v. Wade, laws that created medical standards for um, abortionists to have to follow. Those now are at risk as well. And so there's going to be a lot the court's going to have to work through with issue one now.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's turn to Virginia, where pro-lifers had high hopes of increasing their majority in the House of Delegates and flipping the Senate to Republican control. Neither thing happened. Any thoughts on why?
3: Yeah, I thought Governor Yunkin and his team did an incredible job rallying the Republicans around a common sense bill for Virginia, knowing that it's a blue state. But putting forward what we know the voters um, ultimately will support is protecting unborn children from the time that they can feel pain. Again, what we have to address is, you know, you look at the spending in the state of Virginia uh, and the other side, the Democrats spent nine times as much money focused on abortion uh, as, as the Republicans did and half of the money spent by Democrats was focused on abortion. So when they're spending that kind of money, um, again, to push out their lies, telling uh, voters in Virginia that Republicans were going to ban all abortions, that Republican bills would have no exceptions, which is patently false. You, know, you look at the bill that Governor Youngkin supports, it's, it's a protection at 15 weeks with exceptions for rape, incest, and life of the mother. Um, so they're using that money again to deceive voters because what they have to hide is how extreme they are. They know that the voters don't support whether it was the ohio amendment or whether it's the democrat policies in the state of virginia the voters don't support abortion up until the moment of birth without restrictions through all nine months paid for by taxpayers and so what they they're doing right now is using the, the money that they have to create campaigns of deception and we have to combat that we just we have to do a better job we have to put more resources into it we have to put more intentional messaging behind it and we have to make sure that the we're getting the compassion of the pro-life movement out to the voters
2: Well, what can Governor Young can do now to protect babies and keep his state from becoming an abortion destination?
3: Unfortunately, under uh, you know, Democrat governors uh, and the, the Democrat legislative control that they previously had, there was a lot of laws that they took off the books. And Governor Yunkin is no doubt committed um, to being a pro-life governor, committed to making sure he's doing everything he can to both protect unborn children and serve their mothers. And so I, you know, we look forward to working closely with him to figure out how we can best achieve that under the, the laws that currently exist in Virginia.
1: So Kentucky was another disappointment, where pro-lifers were hoping Republican Attorney General Daniel Cameron would beat the pro-abortion incumbent. Kentucky is so pro-life. Did those voters just stay home on election day?
3: Yeah, yeah I, you know, unfortunately, I think Governor Beshear was unable to hide his record. You know, he has a, a pro, an extreme pro-abortion record in the state of Kentucky, vetoing multiple bills that were then overridden by the state legislators. There's a, a strong pro-life majority in the legislature in, in, in Kentucky. And I think, unfortunately, um, the voters just uh, believed, again, a campaign of deception that Governor Bashir just wasn't as uh, extreme as he really is on the issue. And so, again, we just, we just I think what we've learned Tuesday night was we have to do a better job at combating the misinformation, combating the lies from the other side and being better about putting forward our compassion as a pro-life movement and the, uh, the true policies that we believe in and what they would do.
2: So, Stephen, if you were a general addressing your pro-life troops, what orders would you be giving them today?
3: Uh, I would say um, the battles may have been lost, but the war is not over. And for 50 years under Roe Wade, we woke up and fought every day um, with many people not believing in their lifetime. They would see that be overturned. And it was. Uh, This is a human rights battle. It's the the greatest human rights battle of our time. Uh, We can't give up. We won't give up. Um, There will be no pro-life movement that abandons the unborn children. We know that the road ahead will be difficult. It will be hard. And we are fighting that the devil and evil spirits in many ways. Uh, and we have to fight against a culture um, that's been taught that uh, the you know the unborn children are nothing but a clump of cells um, or that you have Democrat candidates running around saying that there is no baby heartbeat. Uh, so there's a lot of work that we have to do. Uh, the road is going to be hard. It's not going to be a short road to the victories, but ultimately we'll get to the Get to the place where abortion is unthinkable in America.
1: Well, I hope you're right, and clearly the fight goes on. And we really want to thank you for taking the time to join us again and for your insight into these confounding elections. Thanks so much. Thank
3: Good you. Night. Thank you all so much for having me.
2: Thank you. The top political news this week comes from the New York Times, whose latest poll sent a shockwave through the D.C. swamp. Now we're still a year out from the 2024 election, and a lot can happen between now and next November, but the poll is earth-shattering and it has sent the Washington establishment into convulsions. The poll finds Donald Trump beating Joe Biden in five of six key swing states, Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. There is only a 2% difference in Wisconsin, where Biden has the slight edge. Trump dominated on key issues of the economy, immigration, and national security. On China trade policy, voters support Trump tariffs 55% to 29%, and nearly three years of open borders, 53% of voters now support building a wall on the southern border. This sentiment is shown in Nevada, where Trump leads 52% to 41%. Obviously, after the three years of open borders, working class Americans of all races, including Hispanics, are furious. Five presidential hopefuls met on stage in Miami on Wednesday night for the third GOP debate, just over two months before voting begins. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who has shown momentum in recent weeks, came under sustained attack as she competes with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to be the leading alternative to former President Donald Trump. But second place may not be worth much given Trump's commanding lead in the polls. After an opening question that asked candidates to make a case against Trump, who skipped the event, the debate centered on testy exchanges between those on stage. The debate played out against a backdrop of some big Democratic wins in elections a day earlier that left some Republicans questioning whether President Biden will be as easy to defeat in 24 as they have thought. Abortion played heavily in those elections. Haley and DeSantis tried to strike a balance, at least rhetorically, on the issue. I stand for culture of life, DeSantis said, while adding he understood some states would differ in their policies. The governor, who earlier this year signed a six-week ban, said anti-abortion advocates were caught flat-footed on referendums, such as one Ohio voters approved on Tuesday, establishing a right to abortion. Haley called herself unapologetically pro-life, but also said she didn't fault people for having a different view. Let's find consensus, she said. We don't need to divide America over this issue anymore. U.S. Senator Tim Scott challenged Haley and DeSantis to join me in the 15-week limit at the national level. Haley responded that she would support anything that would pass because that would save more babies, but wouldn't commit to a specific limit. As his challenges debated, Trump spoke to supporters at a rally in nearby Hialeah as he continued to run out the clock on a narrowing field of rivals struggling to dent his massive lead. The former president flexed his status in the race and mocked the low ratings for the previous debate. Referring to his legal problems, Trump said, every time I'm indicted, I consider it a great badge of honor because I'm being indicted for you. California Governor Gavin Newsom has sparked speculation about potential presidential ambitions once again after his super PAC cut a check to the Democratic mayoral candidate in Charleston, South Carolina, the home state to a critical early primary. It comes after a Sunday New York Times Siena poll found lingering concerns about Biden's age and performance on the economy. Newsom has long long forsworn interest in seeking the White House in 2024 even as he visited Beijing to meet with its president and is set to hold a one-on-one debate this month with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And that's political news in a nutshell. As thousands of
1: pro-lifers took part in the Michigan March for Life in Lansing on Wednesday, Right to Life of Michigan President Barbara Listing announced that her organization, several Republican lawmakers and other pro-lifers have filed suit in federal court to overturn a state constitutional amendment that protects abortion in Michigan. The referendum to change the Constitution passed last year, but the lawsuit says the language of the amendment creates a, quote, super right to abortion. At no time in our nation's history has such a super right immune from all legislative action ever been created by a popular vote outside of the checks and balances of a Republican form of government, the lawsuit contended. The plaintiffs are represented by Robert Muse, co-founder of the Michigan-based American Freedom Law Center. Muse successfully represented Priests for Life in its U.S. Supreme Court lawsuit against the Obamacare contraception mandate. Pennsylvania pro-life activists Mark and Ryan-Marie Hauk announced on Wednesday that they are suing the Justice Department over their family's treatment when Mark was arrested last year. Their complaints detail the trauma the entire family suffered when they discovered armed armed FBI agents banging on their door early in the morning of September 23, 2022. The suit describes Mark's arrest as an unnecessary and unlawful show of force to arrest him on nonviolent charges when he had not threatened law enforcement, did not own a gun, and had offered to turn himself into authorities if indicted. Mark was arrested a year after an incident outside of Philadelphia Planned Parenthood where he pushed an abortion escort who was harassing his young son. Local authorities dismissed the charges, but Joe Biden's Justice Department resurrected the case and charged Mark with violating the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. He was acquitted of all charges in January and has since announced a run for Congress next year. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals heard oral arguments Tuesday in a case brought by Texas that says the Biden administration is attempting to turn hospital emergency rooms into abortion mills. At issue is a Biden rule announced after Roe v. Wade was overturned last year that said physicians in federally funded hospitals must perform life-saving medical care, including abortion. Nearly all abortions are banned in Texas, but physicians are permitted to perform abortion to save the life of a mother. Assistant Texas Solicitor General Natalie Thompson argued that Texas law is perfectly consistent with the law at issue called the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, but the guidance from the Biden administration goes further than the statute requires. An Idaho mother and son have been charged with kidnapping for allegedly taking the son's pregnant 15-year-old girlfriend to Oregon for an abortion without the consent of her parents. Eighteen-year-old Caden Swainston was charged with rape, second-degree kidnapping, and three counts of production of sexually exploitive material with a child. His 42-year-old mother, Rachel Rachel Swainston, was charged with second-degree kidnapping. Idaho enacted a law in April that made it illegal to take pregnant Idaho minors out of state for abortion, but interestingly, the law is not part of the charges against the mother and son. The girl allegedly told a therapist following the abortion that she lived with Caden and his mother for about six months. After she got pregnant, she was planning to tell her parents, but Rachel Swainston said she would kick her out of the home if she did. As it turns out, she did kick the girl out after the abortion. Defendants admit they took the girl to Oregon for an abortion on May 18th, but deny that coercion was involved. And finally, a mom in Great Britain was in active labor when physicians offered to abort her baby girl. Camila Hussein and her husband, Atif, refused, and their daughter Maya was born at 22 weeks. She spent 15 months in the hospital, but is now home with her grateful parents. Since she's been home, she's been thriving, her mom said. She is a little diva, honestly, everyone loves her and she makes people smile. And that's Abortion in the News. Tonight, we close our show with a very special guest who is determined to be a voice for the unborn. We are very excited to introduce the leader of the White Rose Resistance, Mr. Seth Gruber. Welcome to the show, Seth.
4: Thank you, Leslie and Teresa. Good to be with both of you. Thank you for your work and and your voice.
2: And you as well. So Seth, to say that you're passionate about ending abortion is truly an understatement. So what made you dedicate your life to being a voice for the unborn?
4: Yeah, I mean, I was raised in the pro-life movement. My, my mother was the director of a pregnancy resource center uh, in Los Angeles County while pregnant with me, actually. Yeah. And um, so she was waddling around the pregnancy center in uh, 1990, 91, um, pregnant with me, only stepped down from that center she was directing in Azusa, California, when I was born. And then two younger sisters, I was homeschooled. And at the time, my mother was on the board of directors for the Center for Bioethical Reform um, with Greg and Lois Cunningham. Who have been kind of heroes and uh, leaders uh, historically in the pro-life movement, and so I was raised doing the walk for life every year. <laughs> and uh, I would I would call through the phone book. Um, remember, guys, phone books. Um, yeah. Were, <laughs> when you when you wrote phone numbers down, and I would uh, I would oh uh, well, I guess I would warm warm call through my parents' phone book and say you know hey it's you know Seth, Diana's son uh, raising funds uh, will you sponsor me to walk you know, and so I would. Be be one of the top childhood fundraisers um each year for the the walk for life in whittier california in los angeles county but again you know i was a kid I, I knew babies are awesome and we shouldn't kill them but you know i i didn't have like you know a robust understanding of what was actually entailed in abortion long story short uh homeschooled through eighth grade went to public high school at uh, Nixon's alma mater, Whittier High School. And my senior year, I picked abortion for my senior project topic. And I felt like I didn't have good answers to a lot of my pro-abortion friends. I felt convicted about that. So I had to do a research paper, volunteer hours, and a presentation at the end of the year. They told me I couldn't pick the topic of abortion. I said, um, well, here's a lawsuit um, I recommend you don't do this. Um, so <laughs> homeschooled. <laughs> and so I uh, they, they backed off real quick after I threatened a lawsuit at 18 years old. I did my senior project on abortion. I did my volunteer hours at the Center for Bioethical Reform, where I helped do the Genocide Awareness Project on college campuses all across Southern California. And then I went to Westmont College in Santa Barbara, a fake Marxist uh, front of a Christian college <laughs> that has pro-abortion professors on faculty. Leslie and Teresa. I'm not joking. I started the first pro-life club there. So I would debate with these pro-abortion professors via email. And uh, then I joined Scott Klusendorf at the Life Training Institute, began speaking in Protestant Catholic high schools all around the country, and then got married. And uh, after Roe got overturned, we launched the White Rose Resistance. And so uh, we're in a very late hour um, Mm -hmm. of the culture of death when you can... Let's see, stand outside of the Capitol, but not walk in and get a visit from the FBI. When you can murder a Republican with your car and run him over and murder him, um, and you get five years in prison. But if you're Mark Houck, you're right, or if you're one of the new pro-lifers who's facing 11 years in prison for simply trespassing into an abortion center and asking moms to choose life, they're looking at 11 years in prison. Um, That tells you everything you need to know, actually, about our culture and where we are. And um, if we're not past the Rubicon line yet, ladies, we're very close. And so we at the White Rose Resistance are trying to put ourselves out of a job, and we're doing that by finally awakening the blood-bought bride of Christ to be salty again and do the work that the, that, that the pro-life movement um, had to pick up because the church was not doing what they were tasked with doing. So that's, mm-hmm. that's who we are. That's what we're doing.
1: Well, so you mentioned the White Rose Resist- resistance. Tell us a little bit more about that and and about the name.
4: Yeah, so a lot of people like you, you know, who are in this work probably know what it refers to, but many people don't, and it's it's the story of Christian resistance in the Third Reich. And the White Rose Resistance was a group of kids in their 20s, guys, actually. Um, there was a professor who who was involved with them as well. But most of these kids were in their 20s. And they were believers. Uh, they were Christians. And they were trying to wake up the church. And between 1942 and 1943, interestingly, 1942 is when Sanger changes the name of her organization from the American Birth Control League to the name Planned Parenthood um because everyone knew at that point guys <laughs> that that the American Birth Control League and Margaret Sanger and her ilk were not simply like part of the eugenics movement <laughs> they were the eugenics movement yeah. like and and I have I've have like you know 70 80 minute sermons on this from churches all around the country if you guys go to my YouTube channel on on exactly the links of these revolutions happening at the same time with, with Hitler and, and Madison Grant and the American Eugenics Society here in America and Ernst Rudin, who was Sanger's personal advisor who wrote in her magazine, The Birth Control Review, Ernst Rudin, who was Hitler's director of genetic sterilization. Anyways, I could go on for another 45 minutes. The <laughs> point is, is that like these revolutions were happening at the same time. If If, say, if, if Hitler took a sledgehammer approach to eugenics, then Sanger took a scalpel approach to eugenics she wouldn't have been quite so blatantly honest with her rhetoric or agenda but she did believe many of the same things (laughs) and in fact it was the same movement again go to my youtube channel or podcast unaborted if you guys want the full history of that and i'll give you a teaser at the end of our program today on what we're doing on that front to wake people up but um this they were fighting the same stuff (laughs) that we're fighting here now and (laughs) the murder of jews the unfit the undesirables and and so this young woman sophie scholl and her brother, Hans, um, distribute anti-Nazi leaflets all around Germany to prick the conscience of the culture and awaken the church to action. And, and basically, they, they get beheaded. They're murdered. They have their heads chopped off for their activism at the University of Munich. Um, but their sacrifice has planted the seeds of resistance in our hearts today to build the army of Christian resistance against the culture of death that they dreamed of but never saw realized.
0: Wow.
2: Well, Seth, a lot of your work is focused on churches. So why is that? Why do you focus there?
4: Yeah, well, it was once said um, that unless the church flatulent becomes the church militant, it will become the church irrelevant. Um, all of these questions you're asking me ladies, I could, I could give an hour long sermon on, I'm pretty much, I know our program's quite short, but, um, we're in this position because of the silence of the church. We just had our friend Eric Metaxas on our, uh, resistance circle network, which is a community of donors at $35 a month or more. Who join our ministry and they get our free courses, curriculum, live calls with me, live calls with people like Eric Metaxas, and his new documentary and book, of which I'm honored to be in the documentary that's coming out in January, is called "Letter to the American Church," right? And of course, Metaxas, being the celebrated author of the biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, including Martin Luther, which I know not really a figure the Catholics like, but uh, and uh, and and William Wilberforce, right? And, um, and, and so he studied, you know, these, the, the history of these things, particularly in regards to the sexual revolution, eugenics, slavery, all these things. And uh, it's always been the same problem, um, right? When, when good people are silent, we don't achieve a neutral public square. <laughs> all we do is we give and surrender territory to those who are happy to do for evil what the American church will seemingly no longer do for good, right? We're under the spell of the Johnson Amendment. (laughs) Separation of church and state, whatever that means, which which I always say, then let's keep the state out of the church. (laughs) Oh, wait, (laughs) that didn't happen in 2020. The state is very interested in asserting its dogma and beliefs into the church. They just mean that as a one-way street. They they want to prevent the church from influencing secular governments for God's purposes. And so we've, we've allowed the other side to define the terms of engagement, ladies. So when they call the dismemberment of children in the womb, or, or the genital dismemberment and mutilation of children outside the womb as healthcare. And that's just science actually, it's just political. So you just follow the science. And if you don't use their pronouns or give them you know, chemical or surgical intervention, they'll kill themselves. That's what they say. And they call, they call genital mutilation healthcare, just like they call abortion healthcare. And then churches stay silent. And they go, well, I'm not political. I just preach the gospel. Well, firstly, I don't know what gospel you're talking about because I'm talking about the full counsel of God. Um, I'm talking about that human beings are created in the image of God. They have intrinsic dignity and worth, and therefore we're tasked as believers with holding back those staggering toward the slaughter, Proverbs 24, 11, to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, Proverbs 31, 8, that like, it's actually our role as the church and those who serve the King of kings and Lord of lords to, to be the defenders of the innocent. I mean, Jesus talks almost the most about like pure and undefiled religion, like the orphan, the, the widow, the, the fatherless, like the, the vulnerable. <laughs> like, I can't think of someone more vulnerable than a pre-born child in the womb. But we're like, oh, that's political. I don't do politics at my church. Well, okay, well, if standing against the genocide of babies in the womb makes me political, then I guess I'm the most restless Um, dangerous political dissident allowed at large. Sure. Label me whatever titles you want. This is a genocide. These are babies. These are human beings. These are children. They bear the image of God and are, are the sewers of our country run red with the blood of 70 million children because the church in America won't wake up and speak up. And Ohio proves this. Most Christian evangelicals did not show up to vote. This always is the problem. Christians stay in their pews. We we like our comfortable sermons. We want to say, amen, brother, praying for you, but we won't walk out of our comfortable sanctuaries to actually engage demonic ideologies that have real consequences on the lives of the innocent.
1: Wow. Well, you yeah. said a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> so we heard that you are currently on tour. Where can our viewers go to find out where you'll be?
4: Thank you guys. Yeah. You can go to the thewhiterose.life or sethgruber.com um for my entire tour there yeah we we're wrapping up our our Fall White Rose Resistance live tour I keynote pregnancy center banquets as well but um but most of what we do is waking up the church and we just hired a director of the resistance a national coordinator of activism and we're we are explaining to the church and those who are waking up in this moment i think like post demic, right like post fauci like <laughs> people are like What's going on in America, right? Like all the porn in the classrooms and the moms and dads speaking at school board meetings. Uh, hey, teaser church. Did you know that all came from Planned Parenthood? And so, yeah, all of it, all of it. The comprehensive sexuality education, the diddle, the kids, like obscene, <laughs> lewd stuff, right in the class. Like, it, I think, yeah. I think you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, we've all yeah. seen the curriculum. It's, it's, yeah. it's horrifically horrifying. That all comes from Planned Parenthood. So we, we, we put these the the pieces together, right? Like Chesterton once said, um, "Happy is he." who knows not only the hidden causes of things, but who has not lost touch with their beginnings. We have lost touch with the beginnings of bad ideas and how we got here and the revolutionaries who are more faithful to build a culture of death than the people of God were to build a, and defend a culture of life. And so I speak in churches, we connect all the dots. We invite people into Christian resistance again. And then we do the training, the mobilization. We're starting to hire regional coordinators to get the church engaged. If you're not a Christian and you wanna save the babies with us, amen, you're welcome to the party. But we're a Christian organization. We're not gonna apologize for that because it's always been the church that's either been the bulwark to freedom, liberty, or have allowed evil through their silence. And much of what Bonhoeffer had to say against the German church was exactly this, right? Because of their silence. His famous quote, of course, is silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. And I've done over 35 pulpits in the last 15 months. And the number one response I've gotten from godly, conservative, pro-life, patriot Christians is, Seth, I've never heard any of that before. Any of that, any of what you had to say about the history of Sanger, Kinsey, John Money, eugenics, American Birth Control League, Hitler, the sexual revolution, like all this stuff, we, we don't know how we got here. And so when God tells the Israelites in Hosea 4.6, he says, my people are being destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's happening again in America. We're being destroyed for lack of knowledge. When the godly conservative Christian pro-life patriots <laughs> don't understand the ideas that have created 2021, 2022, 2023. How can you defeat an enemy that you don't understand? We've lost touch with our heritage, our history, and where we've come from. So we tell those stories to wake up the church, to tear down the high places of child sacrifice in America. This is spiritual warfare. And so we're coming out with my first book and film, a full-length documentary in May called The 1916 Project it's not the 1619 project <laughs> from, from the new york times about <laughs> yes. you know the, the, that that that's when the first black slaves come to american shores but but they're saying like we're so systemically racist and evil as a country that that's our true birthday it's not 1776 it's 1619 uh wrong if you want to understand what ideas have created the culture that most americans right now are, are kind of freaked out about and they're like what happened to america you go back to 1916 when sanger opened up her first illegal unlicensed birth control clinic in the Brownsville section of New York, not in Greenwich village where she was from, where all the rich white people lived, but in Brownsville, a poor immigrant community of black Slavs, Italians, and Jews, that single event, the opening of the first Planned Parenthood clinic, let's be honest. That's the, that's the event That more than any other event, and maybe more than any other individual of the last 115 years, explains the insanity of the last three years. That the the dam of bad ideas, the dam of the sexual revolution broke open. And now everyone is like, what is going on? Well, we need to go back to 1916 when Sanger opened up the center that would be the largest, best-funded, and most profitable 501c3 organization in human history.
0: Planned Parenthood.
2: Well, Seth, I wish we had an hour to uh, continue this conversation because um, you certainly have a lot to share. And I'm I'm sure our audience is like, no, don't stop yet. But uh, we hope you'll come back in the future. Thank you so much for taking your time. And, um, you know, maybe when it gets closer to the documentary being released, you can come back and join us again.
4: Absolutely. Thank you, guys. (laughs) Stay stay faithful. (laughs) Stand fast.
1: Thank you you. as well.
2: Thank you. But good night.
1: As we sign off, please stay tuned for a special message from Priests for Life National Director Frank Pavone on why we as pro-life warriors should not grow weary of doing good. And thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priests for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida.
2: If you like our show, please support us by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priests for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating God's people to end abortion. For all of your pro-life news updates during the week please follow us on x formerly known as twitter at pro-life news show i'm teresa watson executive manager i'm leslie palma communications director
1: remember life is the only choice
0: well hello friends pro-life leader frank pavone here director of priests for life thank you for standing firm in all the pro-life work and all the election work that we have done leading up to the elections of 2023 Uh, Certainly there are many things to be disappointed about, but there is nothing to be discouraged about. You know, this pro-life movement is always a a story of ups and downs, of pushing forward and getting pushed back. I remember the years, like 1992, we were hoping to see the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and then in a big disappointment, uh, the Supreme Court reaffirmed it instead. And then right after that, Bill Clinton, the abortion president, was elected that very same year. He took Congress with him. It was under pro-abortion control, the House and the Senate. And then there was a Supreme Court vacancy, and he put Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court. And in those years, the pro-abortion people thought that they had won. But we trudged on. We did not grow weary in doing good. We marched, we advocated, we educated, and we kept voting. And then there was 2008, Barack Obama coming in, again, another abortion president, and taking Congress with him. And he put justices on the Supreme Court in the following years as well. There were many periods of time that we have lived through where the pro-abortion people were in control. What has kept the pro-life movement going? How did we get to the point then where we actually reversed Roe v. Wade? How did we get to the point now where we have over a dozen states where there is no abortion? Not only just perseverance. But first of all, because of divided government, and we still have divided government now, this was not a Democrat sweep of America in 2023. Just look at the specific statistics. The more you dig, the more encouraged you'll be. The governor's races, we actually won two out of three on the Republican side. This divided government means that the pro-abortion side cannot advance their agenda. 100%. 100%. Neither can, the, can the, 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 the Republican side. Neither Republican nor Democrat. But the fact of the matter is we keep them at bay. The other reason, of course, is that the American people never have accepted and do not accept today this idea of unrestricted abortion. A vote. In Ohio, for issue one, doesn't mean that the people of Ohio or the people of America agree with Planned Parenthood. All it means is that the other side is better at lying than we are. are. Again, look at the polling, look at the statistics, talk to people, and you'll see they are far more with us than against us. So we move forward with great confidence. No lie can live forever. And ultimately, we have to remember, pro-life is not just a political agenda an ideology, or a cause. It's a spirituality. Loving the unborn and striving to protect them is an aspect of loving Christ. And you and I follow a Christ who was crucified. Talk about victory coming after defeat. Crucified. But he rose, and life is victorious. As I always say, we are not just working for victory. We're working from victory. Christ has won that victory. It's in our hands. Now let's go proclaim it, celebrate it, and serve it, and never grow weary. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.